What I've learned and what I'm hearing, especially from the younger generations, is, hey, guys, this COVID thing is important. But there's a lot of things, other things out there that we can't forget about in this process. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Mary Ellen Dickey. She's the Senior VP of Advancement at Diacon, a senior living and community services organization that has a broad multi-state impact. But the interesting thing about Mary Ellen isn't just her 13 years at Diacon, but her vast experience across different verticals of nonprofits, whether it's been education or healthcare or now in social services and senior living, but also how that's collided with her background in financial services and wealth management to really help craft her mindset on how she thinks about the donor development process and stewarding donors well. Mary Ellen's experience and what she shares with us ranges from the balance between donor retention and acquisition. How do you actually maximize effectiveness and efficiency without sacrificing the donor experience? The differences between generations and how they think about their wealth and the investments they want to make. And the importance of thinking about multi-channel campaigns versus single-channel campaigns. And all of this tied into our current moment where we're all managing 2020 and the impact COVID and so many other crises has left on our teams, our organizations, but ultimately our donors. And how do you manage that? How do you think about stewarding that opportunity well? Well, not sacrificing your team and preventing staff burnout. Mary Ellen is an experienced professional. I'm so excited for us to dive in. So let's do it. Mary Ellen, you're currently at Diacon and you work you know, on the development team and help lead the development strategies there. But I'm always curious when I talk to development professionals to understand what was the squiggle or the path that led you to, A, being in fundraising and a development professional, but then on to Diacon? <laughs> well, it wasn't a direct path. Um, I started in the trust and estate business and I was a development officer in banking for 15 years, but I managed the or worked in the um, generational wealth division, which led me to environments where I had to create foundations and do a lot of charitable work. Um, and I just ran into a lot of people. And after my 15th year in the banking industry and the trust industry, I ran into some folks that were working at a university and they wanted to meet me to come on board and work with their high net worth donors and alumni um, on some generational uh, giving. And so that's kind of how I started. I got into not-for-profit in higher education. I was in higher education for probably about five or six years. Um, I was then invited to come over to a hospital to help them kind of um, re-engineer their development department and build that up. And I was in healthcare for about six years in a hospital and then invited over to Diacon to kind of rework their development office. I've been at Diacon for 13 years. Diacon is an interesting not-for-profit. It really operates with two operational corporations. Um, it's large. It's multi-state. And it has one operation unit that supports senior living communities and another that supports social services or 
numerous child and family programs. So you can say that uh, I put one hat where I'm in social services, and I have another hat where I have senior living. So I've covered about four or five um, spectrums of the not-for-profit. And that's how I ended up where I am. I just think it's important that um, it's always been important to me to figure out how I can give back. Um, I'm not necessarily a caseworker. Um, I don't have that skill set. Those people are very, very special people. But I have been able to work through my professional career in asking people for money and helping people to give and showing people how they can give. Um, so that's kind of how I kind of ended up where I am today. Yeah. And it's always, it's always fascinating kind of the path at which people get. And I either hear one of two things, I'm not sure, or I stumbled into it. Both seem as though they, you know, set out on one path and then ended up, you know, working alongside donors to help them steward the resources to make an impact. Uh, and I, and I love starting there cause it's, it's such an interesting path, but there's so much consistencies amongst it, but it does come yeah, back to what yeah. you said where there's this di- desire kind of purpose-driven approach to each of their lives. And it sounds like this is the case for you. And that is being expressed in partnership with the skill sets you have through donor development and working with donors. And it, and it brings up an interesting question. You said you started in banking and obviously then were kind of recruited or asked uh, and given the opportunity to move out of it. And the one thing I've seen interestingly throughout successful donor development professionals is their personal like relationship with money or just kind of this idea that they have a view and an understanding that money is a resource that can be leveraged in different ways. How have you seen that play out where it's like to be a really successful development staff, I feel like it's important to look at your own kind of relationship with wealth and money prior to being able to help lead others and how they invest theirs. Well, I was, it doesn't hurt that my entire family was in different type of financial sales. Um, so I was kind of raised in an environment where we talked about money a lot. We talked about estate planning. We talked about wealth management. So it, it, you know, people are afraid in many cases to talk about money. Like it's one of those taboo subjects and yet everybody will talk about it. It, it, it's always amazing to me where people say, oh, I don't want to talk about money. I don't want to ask people for money. I don't want to ask people. And yet when you do, people want to talk about it. They, they have very, very strong opinions about their finances, um, what they want to do with them, what's important to them. They also have very, very strong opinions about how they feel about supporting people around them, whether it's their family or it's people in their community. Um, so I kind of grew up in an environment where we just talked about money a lot. But I think that it is very important to understand that it is a very intimate and private subject. So you have to give it the respect due, but it's very important that you're knowledgeable. Um, I think people will open up to somebody that, that when they know that you know what you're talking about. And my background in trust and estates management enabled me the education to talk about a wide variety of financial positions that somebody might have. And I, and I was able to figure out where to approach somebody, at what point in their finance, um, at what level, and what may be their hot button. What do they want to talk about? 
But I think the relationship piece is really, really important. Relationship development and meeting people where they are. And I say that a lot, and it's kind of redundant, but you have to meet people where they are. Where, what do they want to talk about? What's valuable to them? And you have to ask them questions and then sit back and listen. I know that just sounds so simple, but it's really hard for some people to do that. But find out what is important to them. Find out what's important to them about their money. Don't shy away from money. Go at it and say, you know, money is very important to us. It's something, it's, it's, it's what allows us to put food on the table and send our kids to school and pay the bills and do everything we do. You can't ignore it. So I think it's really important, one, to learn how to talk about it comfortably, but also be knowledgeable about the variety of levels of financing out there, um, how people place their money, what is, you know, how are people investing their money, and understand estate planning a little bit because people are concerned about what's happening in their current lives, but they're also very concerned about what's going to happen to their family. And if you're not as concerned as they're concerned, they're going to see that. And yeah. so I think that's really important. Absolutely. And you said three things there, I think are so like keen to like important that I would like to repeat them or kind of service them again is this idea of being deeply knowledgeable, not about just your organization, but the actual funding and financing of major donors and how that works. And that, that expertise or understanding of that aspect of your donors' lives is going to help you gain more trust more quickly. The other thing you talked about was the importance of listening and really understanding first and foremost, not what you need as an organization, but what your don the donor or the individual you're talking to cares about. What are they passionate about? What is their desire for their lives? How they want to steward the resources they've been giving, given. And, and that's like deeply important. And I think it leads to the third point. I keep hearing an undertone and I, and I've seen parallels when I've chatted with other development professionals that are successful is that there's this posture of being like a trusted advisor, similar to how your financial advisor might help you navigate how to actually accumulate wealth. I feel like development professionals, when done right, can actually help individuals steward their wealth and the wealth that they've generated. How have you seen that play out or that parallel, especially when you've been uh, mentoring or guiding younger development professionals and how they can further their career uh, and be better at helping donors? Well, I, you know, I share the same information with uh, my team um, that I've been able to work with a variety of folks over the years, and they come at you. You either inherit folks at different levels um, or you hire them and you've got to train them up. Um, the things that I shared with you earlier are the things I share with them. I think it's very, very important to understand finance basics. And I'm not saying to people that they have to be an accountant or they have to be, have to be a finance wizard, but they have to understand terminology and they have to understand how people set up their estate. And they really need to understand some uh, accounting. And the reason they need to understand that is so that they can have a good conversation with their finance department. Because having a really solid partnership with your finance department is really key to having a smooth operation internally uh, with a not-for-profit, it, within your not-for-profit. So I will, it, depending on where I'm meeting my team members at, where are they knowledge-wise, 
I try to make sure that I have every quarter some sort of training along the lines of finance or estate. I may take one thing. I may take, for instance, the various types of trusts and what are they and how do they operate and how you ask questions around them. Again, I'm not trying to teach trust professionals, but I'm trying to let them understand when one of their donors says, well, I have everything in a trust, that could mean a variety of things. And I need them to know how to ask the right questions to move in the right direction. Um, If people understand, you know, just basic finances, you know, CDs and stocks and dividends and You know, again, I'm not asking them to be a broker, but I need them to understand terminology because that is where our wealthiest generation right now is invested. And you need to have, you you have to understand what they're talking about. So I try to provide them with uh, education and I try to provide them with other places they can go to get education. And I think it's a very good investment in your department to do that. You've already alluded uh, to the size of the operation that Diacon has to do because of the you know the size of the mission that you all are on. What does your t- development team look like today? What is the makeup? How how have you kind of divided up the development task at Diacon at a high level? Well, Diacon started. Um, it was much bigger, and then when 2008 happened, which was basically one of our biggest financials. I don't want to use the word disaster, but it was a challenge. Um, we had to kind of reinvent ourselves, as many not-for-profits did. Um, so we we have downsized our operation. At one point in time, I had 22 individuals, and when you have 22 individuals in a team you have everything kind of divided out kind of nicely and you are used to a certain return um, of, re- of results. Well, as you downsize, you don't want your results to go down. So anytime something happens, and this is happening right now with our COVID challenges and some of our other challenges, we are having to, and many of us having to revisit how we're going to work and how we're going to operate, but we become more efficient. And so over the years, we did not want to drop our levels of of performance, but we did need to drop our costs and how big our office was. We now have an office of about seven, seven and a half individuals, and it's divided very, very specifically. Um, We have um, two support situations for gift processing and data management. I view data management as one of the most important, most valuable people in the office. That individual is running your database. That individual is helping you support your pipeline, helping you research folks that are coming into the pipeline, providing you with essential data to keep your pipeline full and to keep it fresh. Um, So you've got to have somebody that really knows what they're doing there. Then you've got calling officers. Now we don't have a ton of calling officers. There's three of us that are direct line calling officers, and we cover geographic areas. So we don't just have a specialty. In higher education, you have folks that are annual donor, annual giving officers, and major giving officers, and leadership officers, and plan giving officers. My team is not positioned that way. My team is positioned where we all can talk about all of those things. And when we address a donor, 
if it's a new potential donor, we start with, you know, getting them what is important to them and how do they want to see impact and how do they want to hear about what their gifts are doing. And then we build from there. Um, but my folks can talk about plan giving. They can move from annual gifts to major gifts, leadership gifts. Um, so we all can do everything. We don't have it divided that way. Um, and then we've got a grants team that is really significant at this point in time because we have so many social service programs. And those programs are driven and supported by funding, but also reimbursement. So there's a lot of government partnerships that we have to maintain. And so our grant group is very, very important. And they've had to really step up to quickly respond to the COVID potential grants that are out there. So my office is small, but it's very self-sufficient. We are doing what we were doing with as many people. We've learned how to use social media. We've learned how to work with our various generations. And we also realize we can't be everything to all people. So you have to figure out, okay, what can we do and what's the most effective way to do it? And then kick out the stuff that may not be, you know, responding. You may be doing things that you really, really like, but they may not be responding well. Events is one of those things. Events is, you know, people love events, but they, they take a lot of time and in many cases don't produce the dollars that you're spending to put into them. So we've had to, we are very nimble and we've had to be very nimble to look back over how we were going to respond to what's happening right now. So that gives you kind of from 10,000 feet how we operate. Yeah. And you mentioned so many things because you're right right now, many development professionals that maybe weren't in a role that you are back in 2008 are experiencing this kind of downsizing or downshifting and kind of this, this demand on effectiveness and efficiency uh, for the first time. And it's like, how do you prioritize? How do you effectively manage your teams, but also your processes and your planning? And uh, a friend of mine, Chirian Kashi, always talks about this idea of zero-based planning, where it's like every three to six months or a year, but maybe now more often, he really likes to take his team back to zero and say, what, what is working? What's not working? How do we change and not really leave any sacred cows for like, uh, on the table? Because you're right about events and other things. We, we kind of put them into our programming and then they just stick around for a long time. I know I experienced that when I took over a development team where it was like, why are we doing that? It's like, well, we've always done this. It's like, well, how effective is it? It's like, I don't know. Donors six, like tend to like it. You know, <laughs> everybody loves it. Everybody loves it. We should do it every year. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, well, what's the point? How is it moving the needle? And then you get criticized for being too data centric and not donor centric. And so I'm curious how you balance that. Obviously, you know, there's you have a high um, expectation on efficiency and effectiveness. How do you and your team balance this idea of being data centric versus donor centric? Well, um, you know, it's, it, that, that actually is hard for me because I'm a very metrics-driven individual coming from the finance world. I love my numbers. Um, so I am very metric-focused on, um, you know, results and process. But I think that you always have to realize that this is a relationship industry. And as, as you know, data-centric as you want to be and as even as, as social social media savvy as we're trying to be right now, this is a relationship business. And um, so I think 
we have been very nimble in adjusting very, very quickly. Um, and going back to zero, as you said earlier, um, when we first heard the rumblings of this COVID experience, I believe that was early March, late February, I, I immediately sat down with our team and said, okay, this could be something very interesting. What do we have on the table that could absolutely be impacted like this? And how are we going to change our plan? And so we were able to get out ahead of this pretty quickly. And I've got a really interesting team made up of a variety of ages, which I found, which I find very valuable because you have, you, you come at this from completely different perspectives from these different ages. And you have to, as a, as a development leader, you have to be really open, no matter where you are in the age group, you have to be very open to hear all of these things because these folks that from these different groups have very, very different ideas of how to approach things. And sometimes they all work, but you have to listen to it. So we were able, and we review, we meet every week now uh, uh, virtually, and we talk about, is our plan working? It, are the changes that we made working and looking at our results? And, you know, to plan a year out is really tricky right now because you don't know. So we aren't necessarily planning a year out. We're planning, okay, let's go 30, 60 days out. And you have to be willing not to be wed to certain things. You have to be willing to throw out that sacred cow, as you said, and move on because you can't hold on to things. It'll crush you right now. So you have to have a very nimble team and you have to listen to your team and having a team that is kind of ranges in ages is really, really helpful. And that's something that I would, you know, share to the group out there. Try to bring in all of these age groups to be a part of your team because it's extremely valuable. Absolutely. And I, and I think to, to kind of pay, or like to build on that, uh, you've are, you talked about coming from kind of a generational giving background and managing that. You talked about the generational differences on your team and the diversity there. You also alluded to the fact that the current donor base is a variety of generational givers. And there's kind of a big spread in how each of those different generations that do have wealth think about generosity. So through those experiences, how do you think about this from a donor standpoint in working with a, a diverse range of donors and being able to serve them and not getting, you know, too locked into the average donor is a 65 year old, you know, X, Y, and Z, because I do think though that's still true, there's, there's a lot of value in thinking broader than that. How, how are you and your team approaching that from the donor side? Well, you've got to do, you actually need to be knowledgeable in this and there's a lot of information out there. So you know, you don't need to make something up. You can learn about this. But right now, and I'm not going to get into a generational lecture here, but right now there are seven living generations if you go down to zero. And, you know, there are, there are kind of two that I really focus on. Um, your baby boomers right now are where all the money is. 70% of your uh, wealth is sitting in your baby boomer generation. Those are the, your, your folks ages 56 to 74. And they have all the disposable income. And they're a very interesting group, group because 
They're active. They're not retiring until much, much later. And they are very, very busy people. And people think for some reason the baby boomers are not tech savvy. They're extremely tech savvy, a lot more savvy than you think they are because they've been forced to be. You know, they may not have started out with cell phones and laptops, but if they were working, which many of them were and many of the women were, they have been forced to be tech savvy. You know, that's the generation of, you know, the, the folks that aren't working in baby boomers are on Facebook and the folks that are working are on email and they use search engines and they're on their laptops. They are very, very savvy, but they also still receive mail. So when you're looking at, I really want to focus in that group because in my industry right now, as I've mentioned, I have, we have a whole operational unit that does senior living. Well, that generation is, the older generation is actually in the senior living communities or the 55 active communities. And then many of the younger baby boomers are caring for either financially or physically for the older baby boomers. So they really straddle two generations, but that's where the money is. So you really want to work with that group. I use multi-channels for that group. For instance, right now I have a direct mail piece that will drop and it's going to be received by this Friday. And then in a week I will do an email blast out to that group. And then in probably 10 days after that, I will do a Facebook message that drive everybody to online giving. But in the direct mail piece, they can mail it in if they want. And if you just listen to those three or four channels of opportunity, you will see that you get to cover that broad baby boomer base of how, how they would like to respond. Maybe they want to mail it in because they're a little older, but maybe they want to get an email or maybe they want to read it on Facebook because they're no longer working. So you have to get your message out there in multi-channels just to cover that one generation. But you can't forget about the future generation, which everybody talks about the millennials, but the millennials are the future. And those folks are extremely driven by compassion and impact. They are the most educated generation that we have. So you can't just fool them with things. They want to study things. They want to research things. And interestingly enough, because they're young, people don't think that you should mail to them. And yet they've never received mail. So when they get mail, it's a surprise to them. I have two millennials living in my home or that are my kids. They love to get mail. It's like a new thing to them. If we open a piece of mail that may be for them, that gets them very upset, <coughs> which you probably shouldn't do anyway. But the point is that is a special event for them. So I have to look at those two key groups and figure out how am I going to market to them? Is that, is that helpful, Noah? Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think it is distinctive that each, even though there is differences here, the, the approach that we take is first and foremost, listening to them. And then the other is connecting to them in a contextual way, but that may include multi-channel. And I think this brings up another conversation I've been having with a lot of development professionals is the shift from channel-based campaigns to donor-centered campaigns that might involve multi-channel. And this idea that you're actually centering it around not 
the channel like we're running a direct mail campaign or a email campaign or a digital campaign, but rather we're running a campaign to this type of donor that we've heard save X, Y, and Z, and we're using social and digital in the phone and mail. Because I would, I would agree on that. Like I, I'm on in the millennial generation, um, and I love getting mail. So I would echo that sentiment regularly. <laughs> Um, and I think what's, and I think the baby boomers, we're tossing our mail out. <laughs> what I also think what's interesting is what you also said is that we can sniff out, uh, I don't know the right word that's appropriate to say, but we can, we're, we're very keen to know when something is trying to convince us to do something or trying to like be savvy and like do all of this. I think we do really appreciate like cutting to the chase and understanding what it is and having some level of kind of acknowledge respect for the fact that we, you know, we, we know how to think. And I think sometimes we're, we're treated by generations that don't understand as like, well, oh, they're just like busy. They don't care. You know, if it's not two seconds that, you know, they're not going to pay attention to that. And I, I completely disagree. And what I've seen from even friends and colleagues that are focused on kind of how do we engage this generation in, in, in the generosity process or the philanthropic effort, it is this idea of that, you know, bringing people together, uh, going deep and inviting people to connect deeper is really core to building strong relationships and, and excitement from that generation. But I don't think that's even unique to that generation. I, like when we look at the research around donor retention, it always comes back to this idea that if you can build connection with and confidence in, if a donor feels like they have connection with and confidence in your charity to help them serve the cause that they care deeply about, retention goes up and they're more likely to give to you than to another charity. And so it is about this kind of bridging that connection. And I think that that kind of brings me back to another question I wanted to talk to you about because you have experiences at you know very different organizations across various verticals in the nonprofit space. Is as it relates to building relationships with donors, what what have you seen that hasn't changed over time, and hasn't changed across the verticals you've worked in in the philanthropic kind of industry? Like what what hasn't changed as far as how you cultivate donors, what donors care about? and how you can connect them to the cause that you're working on. Well, I think you hit it, the nail on the head, Noah, when you talked about meeting people where they are. I mean, it really, <clears throat> people think it's rocket science. Uh, and, you know, it's a scary thing to do what we do in fundraising. But basically, you just have to ask certain questions and listen to people. People will open up and they will tell you what their passions are. People want, it, it is an innate quality in most people to want to help people. And we see this when something drastic happens. Um, you, you could talk about, you know, all the challenges that Puerto Rico has had over the years and all of a sudden people from the United States that may or may not have had family over there are just sending tons of money over there. They don't, all that they know is that there's people in need. People had a problem. We can, we can talk about New Orleans. We can talk about, we can list disasters all over the place and people step up because there's an innate humanity about most people that want to, that is compassionate and they want to care about other people and help other people if they can. And, and in many cases, it has nothing to do with how much money they have. I mean, some of my most consistent donors 
give a small amount of money every single month and have done so for all of their lives, but they know it's important to do what they're doing. So I think meeting people where they are. Um, you also have to understand and listen to them about what they're passionate about. What I've learned and what I'm hearing <clears throat> is, especially from the, from the younger generations, is, hey, guys, this COVID thing is important. We do have to pay attention to it. But there's a lot of things, other things out there that we can't forget about in this process. We've got racism. We've got student debt. We've got a ton of stuff going on out there that affects our generation so intimately that you can't just forget about it because this thing is happening. And I, I found that very interesting to when I'm talking to the younger donors to listen to what's important to them because, because we do have this whole unit that is social services and our social service areas, our programs are very diverse. And, you know, the lack of education and the lack of technology that these young people have, we just think, okay, we're going to take all the school and all the education to make it virtual. Well, that's fantastic. The problem is your lower income folks don't have any virtual equipment. And so we make these big to-dos about, okay, we're going to, you know, go to virtual education. We can all do that. Well, what about the folks that don't have those opportunities? And so what I've learned is, to go back to your question, Noah, is please, please, please listen to what's important to your donors. Yes, we have COVID challenges right now. Yes, they're going to be around for a while, and they're impacting the way we live, and everybody's so tired of it, but that's where we are. But don't forget about some of these other things that are so important to our donors because they want to keep helping. And COVID may not be where they want to help. So you've got to, you've got to listen to them. And that's one of the things that I think has been consistent and is unchanged and will be the same forever. Listen to where your donors are and what's important to them. Do not try to make them find value in something that is not valuable to them. Yeah, and that it is so important, and and you know we've reiterated that over and over as we've talked about the responsive fundraising framework, is that it has to start with listening, and listening has to be repetitive. It's not listen once and then assume the rest. It's very much about this kind of continual conversation, and I think that's really a shift in how. It's not a shift in what people expected. It's a shift in now what's possible and that we can have these ongoing conversations at scale with our supporters, with our donors, with our community, whereas before that wasn't like wasn't as easy, easily accessible. And I think because of that, the expectation on organizations to listen and listen well is extremely important. And so I, I appreciate that nudge and reminder. And you talked about kind of just the challenges that you and your team have faced, but also donor development professionals face, you know, balancing multiple generations, trying to be more efficient and effective with less staffing, shifting processes and pivoting to make sure that their systems and their strategies still can connect supporters to their story. And all of this kind of leads to the last thing I know you, you've talked to me about previously is around staff burnout and how you really maintain motivation of your team. We've talked all, you know, this entire conversation about how we serve the donor, how we serve the donor, but how we do that well is through our teams. So how do you approach this? What's top of mind as you even serve your team and kind of continue to go through 2020? 
fatigue on donors and team is equally as important because if your team is burnt out, you're not going to get the work done. Um, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to the, the majority of my team that is with me has been with me for over 10 years. And so I have to reflect back on, you know, why are they, why are they still here? Why do they stay? And we talk about that a lot. You know, in our meetings, I make sure on a regular basis, we talk about why are you guys still here? You know, why haven't you, and even the younger, the younger folks, why haven't you skipped out? You know, you, you know, uh, uh, why aren't you gone? And those conversations are really, really healthy to have. You know, how, well, like, how are you feeling? How do you feel right now about your work? How do you feel about the, the way that we're working? And really give them the opportunity to share their feelings and share kind of what they think they'd like to change to make their life have better quality right now. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I meet with the team virtually every week because we want to stay with one another. You know, usually when we're working and we are going, coming and going from the office, we can see one another. We can say, hey, how was the birthday party that you had for your son? You know, how was vacation? You know, you don't realize those little conversations really feed into the quality of the workplace because you get to know these people. You're with these people more than sometimes you're with your spouse in many cases. So, you know, you just have this ongoing relationship that's developing over time. Because we've been forced to go so virtually, sometimes we're forgetting about that. We're getting on the phone or we're getting on these Zoom meetings and we're talking all about work. And we've cut out that entire personal side of things. And so I found it's important to, you know, meet with your team to talk about work. But I have individual meetings pretty regularly with each one of my folks on my team, and we talk about, usually those phone calls start with, well, how are you doing? How you feel? Are you going on vacation? How's the family? So I start with the personal in many cases to get a feel for, and I'm asking the team, what can we do to make this environment that we're in right now, that we're kind of stuck in right now, what are some things that you've heard from others or for yourself that would make it have better quality for you or that would be more tolerable for you. And I think just having the conversations is, is where you start, Noah. That's that making sure that you're not just always talking about work because you have a tendency to do that when you do everything virtually. Take a step back, have some one-on-one time, and have the conversations that you typically would have if you were in the office. They don't have to be, you don't have to do a deep dive. You're not counseling somebody. You're just having a relationship. And that has allowed my team to continue to thrive. And, you know, and then, you know, I, I tell the folks all the time, listen, if you need a break, take a break. You know, we have a tendency virtually, this is another thing that you and I talked about early on in another call is sometimes we work longer because we're working like this. I know that I spend a lot of time on the road, but because we're not traveling as much, I now have 10-hour work days, and it happens without me even thinking about it. You know, take a break. You know, make sure you schedule. I don't really care when my team works, but I do care that they take a break. 
because you can find yourself sitting at your computer all day long or on the phone all day long. So I ask them to take their vacations. I ask them to take their breaks. I tell them that they, they cannot work 10-hour days. You know, pretend like you're working in the office. So I think being aware that that is happening and asking their input is very valuable. Again, it comes back to very basically communication. And I think the, the same qualities that build strong donor relationships are what build yep. personal relationships, our team, so that we can serve our donors. And I think it's just a great reminder of how, as you said, we're in the relationship business. And that doesn't just start externally. It's also internally and how we can connect with others and be able to work together to serve the cause that we're doing in partnership with our donors. And I think this togetherness is so important. And it's built on the foundation of connection and confidence. Uh, and I, I appreciate some of those reminders. I know we're almost out of time, but I feel like I'd be doing a disservice in having you on without asking, you know, the, the, the big questions that a lot of development don't or development professionals are wrestling with, which is around what now, you know, 2020 has been a box of surprises and a lot of challenges for a lot of individuals personally, but also for organizations. And, and I imagine Diacon as well. What is your outlook as we head into the latter half of 2020 and even begin to look ahead to 2021? Any advice you would have for individuals that maybe are going through a crisis like this for the first time and trying to lead well? Um, I would love to leave our listeners with some insights there. <laughs> if I had the exact answer to that, I would be much wealthier than I am. Um, I think that we're, I think a lot, I mean, there's a lot of smart people out there and I sit on some national boards and we're all asking that question, Noah. Um, I think what the majority of us have come up with is that, you know, again, and we've gone over it a lot in this call, there are things that we know that work that will always work. So the first thing you have to do is just continue to maintain your relationships. I mean, we all know that it's more expensive to get a new donor than to retain one. So don't forget about the people that have been with you on this journey. You know, you just need to keep, keep moving, moving forward with the people that have been there with you. And some of them, maybe reallocating their funds right now. Some of them may be pushing their, their giving to pause, but don't forget about them. Just stay with them. Stay the course. Don't, don't kill them with, you know, all the phone calls, but just stay the course. Do not forget about the people that have brought you to this point and keep moving forward. I know in my planning right now, I'm having to start on my budget planning for next year. That's really going to be interesting. But I have decided that I'm going to budget as if COVID has not impacted us so thoroughly. So there's some things that, that we weren't able to do this year, but I'm putting, I'm going to continue to put in the budget because I know that if I put in the budget and we are still here, I'm nimble enough and we've been able to respond enough in a different direction that we can do that. We've now learned how to respond to a very changing environment. So there's some things that we weren't able to do this year that I'm going to put back in and, and with the positive assumption that we'll be, we'll be better next year. However, there are some tremendous things that we have learned through this experience that we will keep in that we weren't doing. And a lot of that is around, you know, how we work, you know, do we need to travel 
so much? Do we need to spend so much money on travel? Um, what are the different ways we operate as a team that may be more efficient and effective? So every time you go through something like this, you have to, you have to really look back and say, wow, there's been some really good things that have come out of this, if you can look at it that way. And so we have come up with some really nice work efficiencies that we think will save us cost and allow us to operate with the same efficiency or better. So we're putting those, we're baking those back into our budget, but we're also baking back in some things that we couldn't do this year because that makes us, one, feel good. <laughs> we want to we wanna believe that we're going to go back to some level of normalcy, whatever that looks like. So we're baking that back in. Um, and But I think if I were to give any advice to anybody is I would please don't forget the people that brought you to where you are. Stay with them, stay the course, even if they've redirected or reallocated. Put your plans together to maintain them and retain them. And as you do that, and as you do all of your messaging across these cross channels, you will bring in new people. You will bring in new donors because they're hearing your message also. So don't forget about, you know, going after acquisition also. Um, figure out what acquisition channels will work for you that work with your retention channels. Um, I know that's probably not the secret sauce that everyone's looking for, but that's kind of how we're planning moving forward. And I'm really staying on top of any type of webinars that talk about this. I'm looking at some of the significant leadership in this country around fundraising and listening to them. And I think we're all going to go on this journey together. So don't worry about reinventing something. Just use what's been done and kind of listen to what other people are doing. And if you think it'll work in your environment, then try it. Use it and see what happens. This is a time where experimenting isn't bad, you know, as long as you can manage it in your budget. So those are kind of, I wish I had, you know, more pearls of wisdom, but that's kind of how we're looking at the future, Noah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I actually love that advice. So I think you answered the question brilliantly is that we have to hold and let's hold these two truths in at the same time that are contradictory in some ways that we need to lean on what's worked and where we're going and what we've planned in the past. And we know that's good. We also need to be open-minded and always willing to change and listen and adapt as needed. And it all comes back to this idea of like listening and learning. And at the end of the day, I think all of us can be better in all things and aspects of our life, not just our professional lives. If we just lean in and hold this idea of how can we listen better and how can we continually learn? And that's going to help guide us forward. So I appreciate those reminders, Mary Ellen. Sure. Thanks for the time and um, appreciate all that you've shared with us today. Well, it was my pleasure. And, um, you know, good luck to all of the other fundraisers out there. You know, you can do this. <laughs> Just stay the course and um, listen to your donors and listen to your team. And, and we'll make it through all of this. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. 
And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. Oh, 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 o